You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional audio resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good to be with you this week, Northway family. If you are a guest just joining in with us online for the first time, I want to welcome you again. My name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here, and we are on the heels of what I hope was a rich and helpful series that we call DNA, where we looked at the mission, vision, and values of Northway Church. But this week, and really into the next few weeks, I want to do something a bit different. Um, I've been thinking quite a bit about what our church has gone through just in the last two years, and really maybe even in the last six months to be specific. I mean, think back six months ago as we are rolling off from as a campus, from a multi-site mega church into our own autonomous replanted church. At the same time, we are also planting two other churches out of us. And all that went through in the complexities of that transition, all of the friendships that moved on, and then just 20 days after, as a brand new replanted church, we get hit by a massive tornado that literally shreds our building, of which we're still not recovered of. We're still been displaced for two months and then finally get back into a gym before this global pandemic hits us. This has been one of the wildest rides over the last couple years, in fact, last six months, than I think I've ever been a part of. And I think on top of that, as I continue as a pastor to talk to many members in our church, above and beyond just all those things I just mentioned, there are also the daily sufferings that are going on from many of our members who are walking through diagnosis of terminal illnesses, who've experienced the loss of a loved one, who have lost jobs, going through painful breakups. I mean, you name it. When I think about these types of sufferings and really the fact that that all suffering is just part and parcel to being a finite human being in this world. Then I felt burdened to, to spend these next couple of weeks, maybe just laying down some foundations, kind of a, a theology of suffering, a groundwork and framework for, for what God's purposes are in suffering and what our response is to be towards it. And in fact, this next four weeks, as we walk through this theology of suffering, we're going to look at God's purpose in our sufferings. We're going to look at our response to those sufferings. We'll look at our hope in those sufferings. And we'll even look at our security that we can have in the midst of our sufferings and trials. This is a series that I've leveraged several times throughout my ministry, but I'm praying that specifically it might be relevant even more so in this day for us as it's ever been. And so this week, we're going to begin with God's purpose in our trials. And we're going to do so through the lens of James chapter 1. We're going to be in this text for the next couple of weeks. So if you have a Bible accessible to you there, pull up James chapter 1. This is a text that I actually learned to study 25 years ago. But it's a text that I didn't really learn to apply until around 2011 and following. During 2011 to 2013, this two-year run was another one of those unique seasons like I've never experienced before, where between my wife and I experienced 11 funerals of family and friends that we walked through. Began with my wife's mom uh, being diagnosed with mesothelioma, an asbestos-related cancer, told that she was going to have a year to live and then passing away two months into it. Then within a year later, my wife lost her, her father in the middle of the night then shortly after that, I lost my father. Between the three of us, we lost three parents. We lost all of our grandparents in that two-year window. We lost aunts and uncles. I mean, it, 
at one point it was just like, Lord, what is going on right now? Even my daughter, my oldest daughter was, had a list of family members and was just marking off the ones that had passed away. And, and in fact, it looked like a hit list to where we're looking at who's coming next. And our, our, our cry in that season was, God, what is going on here? 11 funerals in two years of family and friends. Where are you, God? What are you up to? And, and how am I going to make this forward? And I don't know if you've been in seasons like that, but what I was so thankful of in the midst of as painful as it was, was grabbing the perspective that I needed that we're going to see here in James chapter one. It's perspective of who God is and what God is up to that we need the most in these days. And in fact, the Dutch priest Henry Nouwen said this, we fail to see the place of suffering in the broader scheme of things. We fail to see that suffering is an inevitable dimension of life. Because we have lost perspective, we fail to see that unless one is willing to accept suffering properly, he or she is really refusing to continue in the quest for maturity. To refuse suffering is to refuse growth. And of course, as C.S. Lewis so famously put it, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. Suffering is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You see, there is a perspective in suffering that we need to have. And so let's take a look at James chapter one as we see this perspective of God's purpose and trials. James chapter one, verse one, we learn a little bit about the context of this letter. It says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. And so we see right here, James is the author. We know this to be Jesus's half-brother, James. Uh, the son of Mary and Joseph. In fact, this is one of the evidences that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Because let me tell you something, if I came out and proclaimed to the entire world that I was the Messiah, let me tell you the first two people that would abandon me in that claim, it would be my brothers. And the fact that you have Jesus's little brother, James, writing here saying that he's a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is claim to the Messiahship of Jesus. But James here assumes at some point leadership influence of the church in Jerusalem. And he's writing now to Jewish Christians who are scattered all over the known world, who are walking through persecution and suffering. These are brand new baby Christians who are discovering early on that following Christ wasn't as easy as they thought it would be. In fact, it is costing them more than they had anticipated. I don't know if any of you have ever thought that. You ever been to that place where you're like, uh, man, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. And maybe it's either due to your own faulty thinking or some TV pastor who lied to you, who told you that once you come to faith in Jesus, that all your circumstances will be blessed because that's what God does for his children. And so your, your health will be blessed and you'll find blessing in your finances. You'll find blessing relationally. And it's like almost playing this country music backwards where everything you start getting everything back that you once lost only to find out that by following Christ, things are actually, in some cases, more difficult than they had previously been. Trials set in, parents turn their back on you, friendships get suffered, you get canned from your job, hardships in the family, tragic deaths of loved ones and terminal diseases, and you name it. And if we're not careful, what can happen in those moments is the temptation to start thinking that maybe somehow God's forgotten about me. Maybe God's not who I thought he was. Maybe, maybe I've done something wrong and God is judging me. And that's why all these hardships are happening in my life because I know all these other folks who aren't following Jesus and they seem to be flourishing, but I seem to be drowning in the midst of my following him. 
don't know if you've ever felt that way. That's exactly what James' followers were feeling in this moment when James writes to them. And what James is going to do in verses 2 and following is he's going to provide for these struggling and persecuted Christians a biblical lens by which they can perceive their trials. In fact, if you're an outliner, here's where we're going today. Verses two through four, you'll see the perspective that we're to have on trials. How, how are we as Christians to perceive the hard times that we go through with a theological point of view? And then in verses five through 11, we'll see the response that we're to have to that perspective, that once you have a correct biblical perspective, how do we then proceed in this trial when life is literally turning into a sinkhole that's swallowing us? And then in verse 12, we'll see what the ultimate end game is. What is God ultimately up to? in these trials at the very end of time. So let's start with our perspective here. Verse two, I want you to listen to what James says here. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now I want you to notice what verse two didn't say. James didn't say, count it all joy, my brothers, if you meet various trials. No, James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials. See, the idea of trials in a Christian's life is the idea really in anybody's life that they are a required course in God's curriculum. This is not one that you can clep out of. All of us will experience trials and sufferings in our life. It's not if, but when. And Job said this, and Job, if anybody knew in the scriptures about suffering, it was Job. And Job said, as sure as sparks fly upward from a fire, so a man is born for adversity. So a man is born for trouble. Both James and Job show us here that none of us can escape a life of suffering. And I want you to notice also the word various that's used there, various trials. It's a word that means plentiful. It means that they won't be one and done in your life. There will be multiple forms that come in multiple times in multiple ways. Sometimes they will even come in floods and overwhelmingly uh, consume you in certain seasons of your life. I mean, I can tell you though how many collegians, when I was a college pastor in my former years, and how many singles even today will come to me and go, oh, Shay, man, I just, I cannot wait until I get married because then life's going to be so much easier, to which I just want to go, oh, young Padawan, it is not that way at all. Even my dad, I can think about my dad when he was alive, constantly searching for the next job that would bring him the ultimate sense of security and satisfaction, moving from one level in corporate America to another, one corporation to another, all the way through until finally he landed what seemed like the perfect job that was going to give him the, the greatest paycheck and the greatest security and the greatest satisfaction. And it was beautiful the day that he signed on with this little known company called Enron. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, just go Google it. The truth is trials can find you anywhere. And in fact, the word meet there, or some translations say encounter. When you meet these trials, when you encounter these trials, in the Greek, it simply means to walk into. Meaning you don't have to go looking for them. They're gonna find you. You, you can run from them, but they're gonna chase after you. See, James's main point right here is that when these trials happen, how is the Christian to perceive them? How is the believer in Christ to perceive them? He says there in verse two, we are to consider them with joy. Consider it all joy. Now, I want you to know something about the word all there. In the Greek, it's in the first primary position, which means it's not saying consider trials all joy. It's saying consider all trials 
with joy. All trials, meaning we don't get to pick and choose. The, the little trials, the big trials, all of them for the Christian are to perceived, be perceived with joy. Now, I don't know about you, but the first time that I ever heard that verse right there, to consider trials a joy, was just after high school, heading into my first year of college when I went through a catastrophic breakup. And somebody slid me over that verse and said, oh, Shay, consider this trial with joy, brother. Now, I'll tell you what my immediate reaction was. Well, let me tell you my second immediate reaction is that whoever this James guy is, he had to be single when he wrote this. Or he was certainly smoking some unusual spice in the first century right there. Whatever it is, why would he say something like this? What kind of person says, oh, a breakup, sweet Jesus. Oh, prostate cancer, oh, happy day. Nobody says that. So what does it mean to consider this with all joy? And that sounded crazy to me, sounded foolish to me until I came to understand what James was actually getting at here. I want you to notice the imperative in verse two. It doesn't say act joyous in the midst of your suffering. No, James isn't telling you to fake it. James isn't dismissing the emotions of grief and pain and sorrow and anger or shock in the midst of suffering. I know there are some of you right now that I know you have been through some horrific atrocities in recent years. And you need to know in no way is James writing off the hurt and the ashes of pain that you have walked through. He's not saying don't feel any pain in this trial, but rather he's challenging the way in which we will ultimately in the grand scheme of things view this trial. He says, count them as joy. Some translations say, consider them as joy. We could use the word calculate them as joy. That is a mathematical term that means that we as Christians, we are to compute this trial we're walking through in a completely different way than the rest of the world will compute this trial to mean. It means we need to have a theological view of hardship in such a way that does not allow our minds to conclude that somehow God is evil or has forgotten about us that would leave us in hopelessness and despair in the midst of this trial. No, we are to compute this trial, to calculate this trial in such a way that we'll end up lifting our sights upward to see there's something else behind it that's happening that is for our joy. Remember this letter is written to an audience that's going through a tremendous amount of persecution who believe that God is good and trials are bad. And because both of these are happening right now, then maybe God's not as good as I thought he was. Maybe he has forgotten about me, or maybe God is just downright cruel and evil. And James says, if that is your first response when suffering sets in, then it's an indication that your theology is off, that your perspective is off. You don't necessarily understand God as you should understand him, nor the way that he intends trials to be leveraged. No, the reason that you and I as believers in Christ can calculate this trial in such a way that concludes with joy is because you know something to be true about trials. What is that one thing where we know is to be true? Well, it's found in verse three and four. James says, for you know, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
Verse three there tells us that in God's economy, trials are literally the testing of our faith. That's the theological framework that we're, we're working with here, that a trial is the basis for which my faith in Jesus will be tested. Literally, the word tested there is the word that means proved. It's validating that what I confess to be true about God is actually still true even when the wheels fall off. See, God is in the business of making sure that our faith and our worship of Jesus Christ isn't just theory, that that in many ways it's testing our faith in the acid bath, acid bath of reality called life. And it's God in the business of using whatever means possible, even hardship and suffering to develop within us something that is so precious that not even circumstances can take it away. Now, I wanna time out for just a second because I think there's probably some that'll be sitting here thinking, you know what, that's all good, but Shay, you don't know what I've been through. You don't know what he did to me when I was younger. You don't know what it was like to have the evil and atrocity that came after my family the way it did. You don't know what it's like to walk through what I went through in those living years of hell in my life. And so to tell me now that you simply want me to believe that God has used all that just to test me so that he could produce something in me, what kind of sick God does something like that? And I just want to take a moment for just a second. And one, I want to affirm that unique pain and hurt that you may walk through. And I want to affirm the fact that I do believe there is such thing as evil in this world. But if that's you, I want you to hang in there because that's exactly the issue that we're going to look at next week when we get to verse 13 and following, when we, when we survey what evil, the existence of evil and the sovereignty of God looks like and how those two meet. But in the meantime, what James is simply trying to do is shape the perspective that a Christian can have concerning the trials that we encounter. Because we know that God is working out something good both in and through us in the midst of this trial that we just can't see right now. James says in verse three, one of the goals that trials tends to produce or that God seeks to produce through trials in us is that of steadfastness or translated endurance or perseverance. It's the Greek word hupomone, which means to, to patiently wait and abide and cling to over the long haul. James says one of the purposes of trials is to bring you to a place to where you can cling to God, where you can wait on God in a whole new category like you couldn't have otherwise done before. James says the ultimate goal, one of the ultimate goals there in verse four is to make us complete, to perfect us in Christ so that we lack nothing. Paul said in Romans 8, 28, speaking specifically to the Christian, all things work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. And you go, what is his purpose? What's the very next verse in verse 29 in that passage? to become conformed to the image of his son. Trials are meant to mature us into the likeness of Jesus so that we lack nothing in our demonstration of the glories of Christ to the world around us. You know, Michelangelo was once asked when he was creating the statue of David out of this big chunk of granite. Somebody asked him, how can you take that chunk of granite and form David out of it? You know what Michelangelo's response was? He said, that big chunk of granite, that actually is David. 
It already is David. I'm just taking away what ought not be. And when you understand that, in many ways, trials are the divine chisel of God that helps to wean us from attitudes and actions that aren't reflective of Christ and to help wean us from our propensity to cling to ourselves or to lesser things for our sufficiency other than Christ. And the goal is not just that would happen for us in the short run, but over the long haul. And so in verses two through four, do you see the perspective that we're to have concerning trials in our life, that we don't view trials as some sort of cosmic accident of a God who's just toying with us, detached from any purpose or meaning in some way that would lead us or leave us with continual hopelessness and despair. But no, instead, what James is doing is he's painting a picture for the Christian to view trials as joy, as an act of faith, believing that God's divine plan is working out something in and through us to produce something in us, a a trust in Christ, a sufficiency of Christ that we could not have on our own. And when that happens, that is when we'll discover an infinite joy that transcends circumstances rather than some cheap, finite happiness that's simply attached to circumstances. So once you've had this perspective down, the next question that inevitably comes is so where do I go next? What do I do in the meantime? Some of you will go, hey, that's great, Shay, thanks. Gave me a good theology there. God's doing something in this mess. I have no idea what it was, but I'm just gonna trust that it's all gonna work out in the end. However, in the meantime, what in the world am I supposed to do next? How do I make it through this pain? Where do I turn to next in order to move forward? I'm glad you asked. James says this in verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Wisdom that's used here is the biblical term for God's enigmatic ways. It's the plan of God that you and I just can't figure out, can't seem to get our minds around. Isaiah 55 says, his ways are higher than our ways. And all throughout the scripture, you see this this truth at work that God's economy is almost at times the exact opposite of man's economy. Like think about it in this terms. In in God's view, if you want to be strong, what do you need to become? You need to become weak. If you want to be rich, what do you need to do? Become poor. Let go of the rights that those things have as ownership over you. If you want to be wise in the eyes of God, what do you need to do? Become foolish in the eyes of the world. If we want to become exalted with God, we got to become humble. And if you want to become beautiful, what do you need to do? You need to look inward and see as God sees you, not as outward as as man sees. You see, all throughout scripture, God's wisdom is almost the complete opposite of everything that we've been taught in our culture. And his wisdom doesn't work like man's wisdom does. So when you're going through a trial, you don't know what to do, and you need to go look for God's wisdom, not for man's, because God has a higher plan in place. It's us praying there in verse five. God, I have no clue what's going on right now. I don't know why this. I don't know why me. I don't know why now. I don't even know what's next, but I know you, God. And I know that you're good and you're sovereign and you're loving and you've got me in the palm of your hands. And so God, right now I'm crying out to you for wisdom. I need strength to view this in a completely different way that presses me further into your son, Jesus, and allows him to be my sufficiency and not myself. Oh God, I need you to carry me through this. James says, you pray a prayer like that. You think God's up in heaven in that moment going, 
nah. In fact, I didn't even know what was going on down there. I was just pressing buttons. And then all of a sudden that happened. Whoops, I'm sorry. No, not at all. God delights when his children come to him on their knees, emptying themselves of their own wisdom in exchange for his. But remember, it's not man's wisdom that you're gonna get. So God may not answer you as you want him to, but he will answer and it will be for his glory and it will be for your good. But the question is, how do we ask for that wisdom? What kind of posture do we need to have when we come to God for wisdom in the midst of suffering? You see this in verse six and following. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What in the world does that mean, double-minded? Does that, does that mean that I need to know and articulate everything perfectly when I approach God in my pain? No. Does that mean that I can't ever come to God with any doubts? That I can't ever come shaken a little bit? No, that's not what that means. If that's the case, we'd all be hosed. Let me tell you what double-minded means right here. This is an illustration that ministered to me greatly, and I've used it before, but I want you to think in this moment for all those parents out there that have ever taught your kids how to swim, remember what that was like. Or as a child, do you remember what it's like when you were being taught to swim? What's typically going on in a swim lesson? Well, typically you've got a child that's up on the edge of the pool, got their floaties on, and then where's dad? You know where dad is when he's in the pool? Dad's 50 feet back. Dad's all the way back here, and he's looking at his kid. He's saying, come on, trust me, jump, I'm gonna catch you. And this incidentally is why moms are horrible for this illustration, because moms, they're not 50 feet back. They're like five inches off, and they're like, hey, jump, jump, sweet. Oh, you don't wanna jump? We'll try this next year, okay. And that's what moms do, they go on. Not dads, 50 feet out, going, come on, boy, come on, girl, let's jump, jump, I got you. And what's the kid doing in that moment, other than wetting themselves on the side of the pool? They are sitting there in that moment, double-minded. Double-minded means they are conflicted internally. They are conflicted about what they know to be true about dad. That my dad is good, my dad is loving, my dad is strong, and he'll catch me. But they're also conflicted about what they know to be true about water and concrete edges. And in that moment, they are double-minded. They want the thrill of being able to jump and have their dad catch them. But they also want to hold on to their comfort without taking any risk. It's double-minded. And God says in the pool of divine trials, you can't have both. You can't come to me with half trust and then hold on to your circumstances with a half trust. You can be afraid of your circumstances. That's human. But you can't believe that your circumstances are greater than your dad. This is God in the midst of your suffering, standing out in the storm-tossed waters, holding out for you, saying, jump, I got you. I will not drop you. You can trust me. I'm good. I'm loving. I'm sovereign in control. And when you jump, I will hold you, though everything around you will fall apart. This is what it looks like to come to God for his benevolent wisdom that he longs to graciously give you to guide you through this pain. Well, in verse nine, James essentially returns to his initial thought back in verse two of considering your hard situation with joy. 
and he's going to give two specific examples, two specific camps that were out there in his day that were struggling with trials, viewing these trials from two different lenses, and James is going to give them here a new lens of how to have joy. And it's for those who are rich and those who are poor. Listen to this in verses 9 and 10. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich in his humiliation. See, right here, I love the way the New American Standard translates this here. Let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position. In other words, the guy who is lowly, who's broken, who's poor, who's never had anything, who's always been hand to mouth, and now he's seemingly watched everybody around him flourish while he's struggling. And James says, first of all, to that brother, you need to glory, you need to boast in your high position. I want you to note again the economy of God, how it's different than ours. James says, when that's you, you're actually in a high position even when you're low. Why? Because in your state of lowliness, Christ can be made great. He can be made glorious because in your weakness, he is strong. And you can revel in that because you know what it means for Jesus to be your sufficiency rather than surrounding yourself with all these material comforts that can lull you into believing that you don't need God. And then James turns to the other. He turns to the wealthy and he says, you to the rich man rejoice in your humiliation. Now, what does that mean? Again, there's lots of interpretations here, but one of the thoughts here is that James is referring to some of the wealthier believers who are now scattered about, who previously enjoyed all the blessings of their wealth, and now because of persecution, it's all been stripped away. And they are humiliated because of it. And James says, you need to rejoice in that because that's a great lesson that you have just learned. Now, what's that lesson? You see it at the end of verse 10 and verse 11 there. Because like a flower of the grass, the rich man will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. He's saying, you just learned a priceless lesson right here, that riches and wealth are temporary. They are here today and gone tomorrow like the dew on the grass. And if God takes it all away and he strips it all away from you and you have nothing, then actually you're going to find that you have everything. Because in that moment of humiliation, you'll realize that Jesus is all sufficient for you and he's always been. But now that everything's been stripped away, now you can see it and you can hold fast to him as he holds fast to you. When even when your whole world is falling apart, man, somebody better preach right here on this text in COVID-19. When we are watching literally everybody have everything stripped away in this moment, and God's grace is that maybe, just maybe, we'll have the lens to see that Christ is enough for us. His grace is sufficient for us in this suffering. I think it's interesting. Most of the godliest Christians that I've ever talked to in my life, when I ask them, what is it that shaped their Christian faith the most? Almost never do they talk to me about their victorious seasons of blessing. They almost always talk about the hardest valleys that they walk through were those that shaped them the most. It's because in those moments, everything gets stripped away and there's nothing else to cling to but Jesus and you and in him, he becomes everything that you need. That's what you begin to figure out. In other words, for the midst of your suffering, if all you get is more of Jesus, then boast in it, rejoice in it, glory in it because he is worth everything. 
Finally, in verse 12, we'll close here. Here is the ultimate end result, the end game of what suffering will ultimately lead towards. In verse 12, James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 5, blessed are those who suffer for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Paul put it this way in Romans 8, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't even worth, worthy of being compared to the glory that will one day be revealed to us. In other words, in having a proper perspective of trials, not only do you understand that God is doing something glorious in and through you in the midst of this suffering right now that you can't even fathom, but also on the other end of this thing, God has something waiting for you beyond what you can possibly fathom. And that is the crown of everlasting life to those who learn to persevere in Christ, holding steadfast through trial all the way to the end. There is the reward that is in front of us that makes all these sufferings not even worth to be compared to what's coming. When we will be face to face with God forever, no more tears and no more sorrow, no more pain, no more suffering. And that becomes the hope that helps us endure and withstand all the way to the end. More on that though in week three. What I want you to see is what verse one through 12 is telling us right here. What James is doing for the Christian is establishing the greater purpose in trials of how we're to perceive them, not as some cosmic accident by a God who's puppeteering evil in your life. But you're to view trials with joy because you know as a Christian something that the rest of the world doesn't know. That God has an enigmatic wisdom in the midst of this and a sovereign plan that he is working out that is for your good and for his glory that is producing steadfast maturity within you so that you can display Jesus to the rest of a broken and hurting world. And not only for the short run as he wanting to do that, but to do that for the long haul until the day that he either returns or he takes us home to be with him in glory forever. Now there is more coming over the next few weeks. And I don't know where you are right now in the midst of your suffering, but I wanna encourage you to hang in there and keep trusting your heavenly father who's got you in this. And we're gonna unpack a bit more. So hang with us as we keep moving through this series of the theology of suffering. But I wanna close with this quote from a lady by the name of Verdell Davis. She was a woman who lost her husband in a tragic plane crash, and she wrote these words. God is doing a greater work in us, and that can only come as we learn to trust him, no matter how dark the days and sleepless the nights. And it is only as we have been through the darkness with him that what we know with our heads begins to slide down into our hearts and then our hearts no longer have to demand answers. Why? Well, the why becomes unimportant when we believe that God can and will redeem the pain for our good and his glory. When I put the sovereignty of God beside his unfailing love, then and only then can my heart rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in the midst of one of the hardest days our world has seen in recent history, and in the midst of the individual sufferings that each one of us will inevitably go through, 
that we can hold fast to the promise that you are good and that you have a plan that is being worked out. And God, if for nothing else, you are stripping away what ought not be so that we can hold fast to the only thing that eternally matters, and that is the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Would your ministering presence, your ministering power, and your ministering promises please be near to those who are walking through a difficult time right now. God, let us hold fast to the hope that is in Jesus Christ, gaining a perspective of these trials that can lift our sights upwards in joy rather than downwards in despair. And certainly, God, we pray this for your good and for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.